For all your fantasy football needs, check out the Ringer Fantasy Football Show with me, Danny Kelly, along with Danny Heifetz and Craig Horlbeck. That's the Ringer Fantasy Football Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. This episode is brought to you by Hulu. Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone star in Hulu's limited series Under the Bridge, a chilling true crime story based on the acclaimed novel. Hailed as a riveting and heartbreakingly realistic work by the Chicago Sun-Times and featuring excellent performances, according to Time magazine, the series is for your Emmy consideration in all categories, including outstanding limited series and outstanding supporting actress in a limited series for Keough and Gladstone. For more information, visit fyc.hulu.com. It is Wednesday, December 27th. We are live from the second worst table at the International Ballroom of the Beverly Hills Hotel. It's the Townies. Thanks, Craig, for the fancy music. You look great in your purple tuxedo. This is our year-end award show episode, a two-parter. It's been an absolutely insane year in Hollywood. Maybe the worst year ever. That's debatable. But the industry has been under attack on four separate fronts this year. Economic, technological, social, and political, all at the same time. The strikes obviously hit the economics pretty hard. The disruption has gone way beyond those six months of work stoppage. Add to that the technological threat of AI, the fact that Marvel and DC superheroes largely stopped working at the box office this year. Though I think the demise of the genre is a bit overstated. Disney. Warner Discovery and the rest of the studios are firing people as fast as they can, canceling projects, selling shows to Netflix, which they said they weren't going to do. And recently, Bob Iger basically declared that Disney content is too woke, repeating a Ron DeSantis talking point, which didn't think would happen at the beginning of this year. We saw the end of peak TV, the studios basically throwing in the towel on the streaming wars. Netflix recovering from the great correction to dominate the year with the suits phenomenon and now this pivot on data transparency. Paramount, one of the legacy studios, became a zombie this year. Live, but kind of not. Live music dominated. A bunch of other trends we're going to get into today. We followed it all on the show. More detail in my Puck newsletter, which you should definitely be subscribed to. I'm naming the hero and villain of the year in the newsletter only this week. But it all culminates in the Townies, our year-end show. This is not a typical award show. There will be no political speeches, no musical numbers, although someone might get slapped. You don't need us to tell you who won Best Picture or that Barbenheimer was a thing. These are our awards based on our own observations and reporting. We've got Lucas Shaw from Bloomberg in here. He's the Amy Poehler to my Tina Fey today. And he's back to co-host with me on the final episode of the year. Today, it's the Townies. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. Okay, we are here with Lucas Shaw of Bloomberg, and it's The Townies. Are you excited, Lucas? I am. I wore my extra special flip-flops just for you. No, stop. Don't lie. You look great in your tux. Everybody does. We're all wearing tuxedos. 
You haven't heard about the new trend where you pair <laughs> open-toed shoes and sandals with tuxedos? Are you going to go full Chalamet with the jacket and no shirt? Uh, yes. Little dude, does everyone know that uh, I am actually the one dating Kylie Jenner? <laughs> nice. All right. So we have come up with our categories for the townies. These are our awards that we are bestowing upon the entertainment community. And there is no cash prize that goes along with it. But you do get the honor of being selected for the townies. We'll do half today and then we'll stop and we'll do half tomorrow. And then we'll wrap up the year. So let's get right into it. Do you want to go first? We're going to start with most destructive behind the scenes drama. This is a very competitive category. You go first. I will pick the greatest show on Amazon that nobody's heard of, uh, which is Citadel. <laughs> oh, yes. The good old Citadel. The Russo brothers. First category. They get most destructive behind the scenes drama. So for those who don't know, Kim Masters did a big story on all the problems at Amazon. I did a big story on all the problems at Amazon. Both of them in some ways hinged on uh, on Citadel, which was kind of Jen Salky, the head of Amazon Studios, big swing, supposed to be this international spy thriller that pulls in stories and, and, and people from all over the world and creates spinoffs in different countries. And it sounded great on paper, but it was basically a formula that did not translate into a story. The Russo brothers, who have got this reputation as sort of the superhero kings because of their work on some of the Marvel movies. That part of it's deserved. Most of the, and some of the other stuff they've touched has not worked. This being a I would say example, their reputation is a bit more nuanced at this point. Yes. <laughs> they created an alternate cut of the show while the creators were making their own cut of the show. Yeah, that is my favorite detail of this, is that there were two competing versions. They spent so much money on reshoots and the resulting show didn't really get an audience. And I, they, I'm convinced they only ordered a second season to save face. Well, or it was pre-baked into the original deal and they had to do it. In fairness, Amazon claims this show was huge in India. <laughs> Where they have maybe five or ten million viewers. And Priyanka Chopra is in this show. So maybe that helped as well. But yeah. All right. That's a good pick. Mine, though, blows this away. <laughs> My pick for most destructive behind-the-scenes drama is Yellowstone. This is the drama that will not quit. So to recap, at the beginning of the year, it was learned that Kevin Costner and the producers of Yellowstone, notably Taylor Sheridan, who is the most important creative person at the Paramount Global Company, were locked in a standoff because the scripts on Yellowstone, the second half of season five, had been delayed because of various problems on set. And Costner decided that he was not going to come back to the show. He was focused on doing his Western movies. He did two movies called Horizon. Actually, he wants to do a third. And he was focused on that. He did not want to come back to the show and wanted to be paid an extraordinary amount of money if he did come back. And basically, it got worse and worse and worse to the point where Taylor Sheridan decided that season five, the second half, would just exist without Kevin Costner, who, by the way, was the reason this show existed in the first place. It was supposed to be a Kevin Costner show. It quickly became more of an ensemble show, which Costner did not like. And they decided that they're going to move on without him. Keep in mind, this is TV's number one show. This is the biggest show on television, and it is losing its star because they could not agree on a timetable to shoot the second half of season five. Costner gave them some ridiculous, like, I'll only be there for a few days. You have to, you know, shoot around me. 
And they just said, thanks, no thanks. It seems like you should be able to resolve a scheduling dispute. Even if I can tell that your problem is with Kevin Costner, I feel like this should have been solvable and I don't get how it wasn't. How, how do you kill the single biggest show you have at your company? Over? Clearly, you have never met or dealt with Kevin Costner. This guy is in the Hall of Fame <laughs> of drama queens assholes. Basically, the paramount position is we'd love to have you back. You just got to come and give us reasonable days where you can shoot this show and we'll pay you your $12 million for the second half of the season and come back. And he said, no, you know, you, you change this materially on me, pay me anyways, and I'm going to go off and do my Western movies. By the way, that's going to be a good narrative for 2024. This strategy of whether Warner Brothers will be able to successfully launch $200 million Western movies within six weeks of each other. I seriously doubt it. Let's move on to the next category. Most baffling success of 2023. I'm going to start, okay? Because this one, pretty obvious to me. Got to go with Sound of Freedom. This is the, you know, low-budget, human-child trafficking movie that somehow caught both the faith-based crowd and the QAnon or QAnon-curious crowd. Ended up making $250 million worldwide. Most of it domestic. I have a question that's going to make us both look bad. But did you ever see this movie? I did not. No, I have relatives who did. <laughs> and they said it was they said it was compelling, but this didn't get to 250 million dollars because it's good. It got there because of the unique marketing campaign they did where they did this crowdfunding thing where people who donate money to get it made became ambassadors for the movie. Then they did this pay it forward campaign. We've talked about this on the show where you got to endorse the movie by paying for someone else to see it. And there, there was an interesting Rolling Stone story recently about whether that uh, was completely financially kosher in what they did. But let's just say it was. And that's how they turned this into a viral sensation. I think on the one hand, it is not surprising because we see these certain types of movies that have religious overtones or political overtones that speak to the middle of the U.S. that just do well. And it's always a quote unquote surprise because people in L.A. and New York are not. I get touch. it. And Jim Caviezel is basically the Leo DiCaprio of the Jesus set. Yeah. But it, the extent of its success at a certain point outperforming a Tom Cruise Mission Impossible movie, I think, was beyond what anyone would have expected for sure. Yes. OK, so who? what is your most baffling success? Well, I'm picking something that also appeals to that same demographic, which is proving that you and I are just out of touch, which is, uh, do you ever listen to the, the Theo Vaughn podcast? I do not, but I am aware of him, mostly because of his background on the challenge. But yes. uh, continue. He started as a reality TV star and then had carved out a career as like a moderately successful stand-up comedian. Not huge, not a failure. And then for whatever reason, this year, his podcast went from being just another comedian with a podcast to being one of the five most popular podcasts in the world, or at least in the U.S. But isn't and, that just the history of the podcast business? I mean, no. if you had told me in 2005 that the two biggest podcasters among them would be Dax Shepard and Joe Rogan, like they were BC level comic guys. Yes, but two things on that. One, those guys did their shows for a really long time and built up the audience. Breaking out as a new hit podcast almost never happens now. Certainly not at that level, unless you're part of a really big 
network or have a huge following in some other area. He got like a mix of like, he's a little bit of Joe Rogan. And so he got some of that and he like went viral on TikTok and he fits into these comedians who are just will like, are not necessarily all that smart, but will say the things out loud that people think are provocative and makes them yeah, sound like the edgy Matt and Rife, controversial. Shane Gillis, that, that crowd. You know, I, I would recommend you to listen to his interview with Tucker Carlson. And if you can listen to that and explain <laughs> to me why it's the most po- one of the most popular podcasts in the world, I'm all ears. I, I still haven't listened to the Kevin Spacey, Tucker Carlson video. I just, people send it to me. I just I can't like it was Christmas. I'm not going to do that. But all right. So uh, that's that's a good one. My runner up was the Taylor Swift movie that getting to 250. If you had told me that at the beginning of this year, I would have said, haha, no way. There is absolutely nothing involving Taylor Swift that I can find baffling or surprising right now. I know. Not about I know. I shouldn't, have, I shouldn't have been surprised. I, we'll get to her later. But I am a little surprised. Once it opens so big, I'm so actually surprised it didn't end up beating the Michael Jackson movie. The, I, this I, is I was too. Yeah. I mean, I get, you know what? He did have to die in order to get to 260 worldwide, and she did not have to die. But uh, she only got to 250. She just died in her soul. (laughs) I'm sure I'll get some shit from the Swifties. I'm not blaming her for the Chiefs' downfall this year. I'm not going to use the words uh, Yoko Swifto. But um, yeah, Taylor Swift just did almost almost got to Michael Jackson. All right. Next category. Most annoying media narrative. You can start with this one. I've got like five or six or seven (laughs) for this. You're just perpetually annoyed. But I'm going to go with streaming is a bad business. Oh, interesting. Okay. Explain. Ever since Netflix had a rough start of 2022 and Wall Street soured on some of these media companies and wanted to demand profits and all these things, which were related to some macroeconomic forces, inflation, war, what have you, people just decided that streaming was, in fact, a shitty business and trying to go after streaming was the worst thing any of these companies did. And like, trying to copy Netflix was bad. And to me, those are all such ill-conceived arguments. Like, it's very clear that streaming was, is replacing television. Online TV is replacing linear TV. And Netflix is a wildly successful company. It's a good business. And it has a lot, it had a lot of time. The issue was you had all of these companies trying to replicate like 10 or 15 years of Netflix history in like three to five years. And they all did so with different degrees of middling strategies. And so I blame Well, they also had 90, 100 years of library. The one thing Netflix didn't have. Uh, But I just think that they all went about what they were doing and streaming in bad ways in one way or another. Or the timing for them just wasn't great. The issue is not streaming. Streaming can be a lucrative business. The issue is the companies that that had multiple revenue streams and we're like streaming is the only thing that matters to us netflix could do that because that was netflix's only business yeah no i get it and ultimately streaming is whether you think it's a good business or a bad business it's going to be the business at some yeah, point they gotta right? figure they gotta figure it out it's sink or swim we also talked about sort of like undercovered aspects and the idea that netflix got away with this password sharing crackdown and there was no user revolt no like customer outrage to me is insane. That was like, we, we're going to talk about PR fails, I think, soon. Like this was, in many ways, a, a PR masterstroke in the way that they rolled it out without getting blowback. Oh, speak for yourself. Craig's still upset. He, I mean, he's getting kicked off his parents' <laughs> Netflix. He won't shut up about it. I'm sorry, Craig. 
Don't worry. <laughs> they they updated to add a couple more uh, users, so I'm good now. Okay, good. All right. Um, all right. So my most annoying media narrative is, and please do not at me. Do not. This is a nuanced take here. This notion that the Writers Guild quote won the strike, and I don't want to say that the writers didn't make significant gains. They absolutely did, and there were things that they have in their deal that the studios were not offering at the beginning of the strike. So by definition, they won those things that they got. But in most of the media coverage of the strike, both the actors and the writers, it was taken as a given that the writers won without really discussing the billions and billions of dollars that was sucked out of this industry due to the six-month shutdown for both strikes. And to me, that is a, it's a fail of the nation. I'm not saying who's to blame. I'm not blaming the writers. I'm not blaming the studios. I'm just saying, when you talk about wins and losses of the strike, you have to include the damage that was done to this industry over these six months and the damage that is still lingering because of the effects of these strikes, including the deflated market that is impacting these writers who won the strike, but now have to be in this market that has been damaged. The pain that you're describing is a very sad and real phenomenon. However, oftentimes, if you're going to have effective labor organizing, an effective strike, if you're going to get what you want in a negotiation, there has to be a degree of pain and displeasure for the people to, to get what you want. Of course. If, if I'm, not, and I'm, not, I'm not challenging the strategy at all. I'm just saying in the media coverage of the strikes, it was a lot of cheerleading for the gains that were made by the unions and not a lot of acknowledgement of the damage that was done to the industry during these strikes. That is all I'm saying. I'm not passing judgment on what the writers got. I got in fact, I'm saying that they made significant gains. There were some outlets and some individuals who did a good job at this, but I do wish that there had been more coverage of the people who were suffering during the strike. Because I think that there was a point at which both sides were really dug in. And I wonder if some of that empathy that would have been generated by those stories would have forced them to do something sooner. I don't know the answer to that. I thought about doing the whole like suits people didn't get paid one because that drove me insane. I was <laughs> yes. just like utter like utter ignorance as to how the business works. It's like they did get paid, but they got paid under the deal when they made it and you don't get extra just because it blows up on Netflix. Like that's never really been how the industry works. Now we can talk about relitigating if they should have when that happened. But also there was the guy who like wrote the column for the LA Times all about oh, yeah, how, he, yeah, yeah. how literally got paid for one episode while not stating that he had produced more than 100 episodes. So he probably got paid some money for that Netflix deal. Yeah, we, we don't have to go into all the bad media coverage of the strike. There was a lot. But yeah, so my runner up was the comic book movies are dead narrative. Uh, I, you know, I think that's just getting oversimplified a lot. Like, yes, these movies cost too much and they have to be recalibrated. And perhaps the number of comic book movies needs to come down. They certainly need better creative execution. But the notion that comic book movies are going to go away after dominating for 25 years, I, I think is overstated. Matt is an unpaid consultant on <laughs> David Zaslav's reboot of the DC universe. I, he I just have to disclose that. 
I will be playing Jimmy Olsen uh, in the Superman reboot. So yeah, no, that's that's uh, not happening. But I think a couple hits in the next year or two, and people will be like, oh, okay, they're back. I was just going to ask if you think of the two franchises, because like Marvel's been so much more consistent for the last 10, 15 years. Does this create an opening for DC to beat Marvel? Sure. If Superman is good, I mean, we'll have to wait a year. But if the Superman movie is amazing and launches a new DC franchise and Marvel's still spinning its wheels, great. I don't think that's going to happen. I think the <laughs> properties that Marvel has in its, you know, in its pipeline right now, including Deadpool and Fantastic Four and X-Men and all the stuff that they got from Fox that they can now put into the MCU machine. I think that's probably going to give them a leg up. And how many times have we been talking about like the new DC and, you know, what they're doing and, and how the extended universe is going to be new and improved? Like, I'll believe it when I see it. This episode is brought to you by Hulu. Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone star in Hulu's limited series Under the Bridge, a chilling true crime story based on the acclaimed novel. Hailed as a riveting and heartbreakingly realistic work by the Chicago Sun-Times and featuring excellent performances, according to Time magazine, the series is for your Emmy consideration in all categories, including outstanding limited series and outstanding supporting actress in a limited series for Keough and Gladstone. For more information, visit fyc.hulu.com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. All right, let's move on to my favorite category, the publicist fail of the year. And I'll go first with this one. I'm going to give this award to Team CNN for the Atlantic Magazine profile of Chris Lick, <laughs> who was running CNN at the time. Total disaster. I mean, the narrative on Chris Lick was not great going into this profile, but it's very rare that you see a piece of media directly lead to the firing of the subject of that piece of media. And here we had it with Chris Lick, the infamous, you know, Jeff Zucker couldn't do this shit, pumping iron at 6 a.m., the dismissiveness of his colleagues, the, you know, obsessing over his own media coverage, lots of things in there. It just all crystallized for, for Chris Lick. And honestly, I blame the publicists. Like, you need to step in here and make sure that when you're aware that this is happening, manage this. I mean, yes, all they were all fired. All the publicists were associated with this were fired, but it's the fail of the year in my book. You got to manage this better. This is the obvious choice. I think there really isn't a second, especially because the one that I'll do and some of the other ones we'll discuss, I think you're talking about executives where the, the publicists really can't control them. Whereas this is a case where, yes, Chris Licht is a big deal and all that, but it would have been possible to shut some of it down. Yeah, I mean, I they, they say, when you talk to those guys, they're like, we didn't, he wanted to do it. He was adamant about it. We had to give him leisure. You know, you don't. You don't. This, this guy is new to the company. You shut it down. All these Fox executives that went over to Disney and they were used to doing their own press all the time, Dana Walden, John Langrav, all these Fox executives 
They don't do that stuff anymore now that they're at Disney because Disney shuts it down. Look, I got where Chris was coming from. I think he thought that author Tim Alberto would sort of like they were simpatico on how they viewed the world and he'd get a fair airing and he just shot himself in the foot over and over and over again. My choice for this is uh, you did team CNN. I'm going to do team X, FKA Twitter. Oh, that's too easy. <laughs> You're assuming there are publicists at, that, at Twitter. Well, at, Linda at Yaccarino X. does have a publicist who is out there pushing her regularly. And that included the Financial Times story where she appeared like Jesus on the cross, which was widely mocked. That included her speaking at the Code Conference where it was like one of the most car crash interviews I have ever seen. Yeah. And it sort of culminated in Elon Musk at DealBook uh, telling advertisers in Bob Iger to fuck themselves and looking just mentally unhinged on stage. Now, the Elon Musk impossible control, he shouldn't have done it, but he did it and whatever. The Linda stuff, just like the desire to build up her profile and put her out there, she should let Elon Musk attract all the attention. She should go and execute and actually make the company work. And instead, it's been a lot of press that has made her look really bad and totally torpedoed what was the really good reputation as probably like kind of the foremost advertising executive in traditional media. I know the publicist winners of the year are the NBC Universal PR team that used to handle Linda Yaccarino. Because now we know they were managing the hell out of her reputation because she seems nuts. Yeah, it, it's, it's been a wild year for, for that company. <laughs> so, you know, OK, so publicists fail. You don't blame the Disney team for Bob Iger's Sun Valley meltdown? I do a little bit. But my two things. One, I think it's if Bob wants to do that, he sort of gets to do it. Two, him doing an interview with David Faber at Sun Valley is an innocuous thing. Right. Like now it didn't have to be 35 minutes or whatever it was. Yeah. But and a lot of the things that he said where he's just sort of like tossing out different ideas, it does just feel like a strategy of theirs. And we can agree or not agree. Not a disaster. The only thing that was a total disaster in that interview were his comments on the strike and his about kind of insinuating or saying that the, the writers were being unreasonable and asking for too much. And I could be wrong, but I'm going to guess that that wasn't like the exact language that the PR people wanted him to use. And he no, just, of like, course not. Said but, it, but putting him in that situation and not yeah, giving him. So, I don't know. He's been so good at this stuff for so long. Yeah. I think giving him the benefit of the doubt with someone he's done a bunch of interviews with that to me is not a publicist fail. That's an own goal by Bob Iger. That's not. Christina yeah. Schott All right. Himself. I see that. I just feel like the timing wasn't great. Putting him in that chair, even if he had said the right thing about the writers, the optics of the talent on strike while the CEO is hanging with billionaires with the mountains in the backdrop at Sun Valley. That's still not a great piece of timing in press, but whatever, we'll move on. All right. In staying in the PR world, the least believable announcement in 2023. I'll start. I'm going to go with Rupert Murdoch retiring and I'm putting retiring in pretty big scare quotes here. Rupert is not retired. Rupert will never retire. Rupert is still advising everybody here. And you can get into why they made the announcement, whether it was you know, potentially to avoid legal liability. I don't think that's true at all. You know, Yes, his age and maybe investors like the fact that there was a clear succession. Maybe he was signaling to the other members of the family that his choice is for Lachlan to run everything so that when they are going after the company and when he's gone, they will know that that's his wishes. Whatever the reason, 
nobody believes he's actually retired. The non-retirement retirement feels like the the obvious answer here because I want to do Bob Iger. I want to do Vince McMahon. I want to do all the people who say they're leaving, <laughs> but you know are not leaving. It's just the fit. You know, you got these guys who never want to give up the seat. It's the boomers, man. They stay until they die. It's why no one can get a, a good job in this country. No one will die or retire. My runner up here was the Disney announcement that they're going to release two Star Wars movies in 2026. Uh, I will believe that when I see it. We'll see if, you know, Kathy Kennedy uh, can do it. One of them is supposed to be that the one with Daisy Ridley, where she's a Jedi master trying to put together Jedis. Uh, the other one, they have not said what it's going to be. But as people who listen to the show know, I have little confidence in Lucasfilm on the movie front. So do not believe that's happening. Let's move on to the sneaky success of the year. Something that wasn't obvious, but we believe was a pretty big success. You can go first. I'm going with the return, or I don't know how the right way to characterize it, but Japan had just a, a phenomenal year <laughs> in Hollywood. Is this a, is this a low-key Shohei Otani endorsement? There, I mean, I'm not even talking about the fact that the Dodgers just spent more than a billion dollars on two Japanese baseball players and then basically <laughs> annexed Japan. And they both celebrated at Nobu, which was nice. The second biggest movie of the year is an adaptation of a Nintendo video game, Super Mario Brothers. That one, a little more overt, obvious, not sneaky. But then in just the last month or two, you've got a new Miyazaki movie, The Boy and the Heron, that's topped $100 million at the global box office. And you've got another Japanese movie with Godzilla Minus One that has, I think, surpassed $75 million at the global box office and is going to do more than $20 or $30 million in the U.S. That's crazy from a Japan perspective. And I think you're seeing the seeds of Japan having some of the success in exporting their film and television that you've seen with Korea recently. There's also a, a Japanese show on Netflix that's been doing crazy over the last uh, last couple of weeks. So you're saying Japan is the new Korea? I'm saying Japan could be the new Korea. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Is this just to justify more of your Bloomberg finance trips to Asia? No, because I could go to either place, you know, if Korea <laughs> you stayed on top. You, go, you went to both last time. <laughs> I, I did. <laughs> All right. Uh, my sneaky success of the year is The Sphere, the new venue in Vegas that was roundly criticized when it cost $2.3 billion to create. It has been a pretty unqualified success so far. And this is not a long-term endorsement. We'll see what they do post U2. But the residency from U2 has been a huge success. If you look at their financials, they're actually doing pretty well. The Vegas sphere is going to be profitable in its first year. And the entirety of the company is profitable, even though they're spending about $200 million on international expansion. And the way that the economics of this business are playing out is they're actually not making the most of their money on the musical performances, on the, the live booking. They're making it on the Aronofsky movie that they put in there. They're making it on the advertising that they are putting on the outside of the sphere. They have a nice business here, and I think that this was a sneaky success of the year. Two things. One is I find it hard to call it sneaky considering the amount of attention that it has gotten. But the attention wasn't all positive. A lot of it was like, Jim Dolan thinks he can, you know, reinvent the concert business. What a fucking idiot. I will say financially, it is a huge question mark. 
they've gotten off to a really good start, undeniable. I think the advertising component of it is really going to work. The concert thing, probably the only issue with that is they, because of the way the tech works, they can't do that many shows. But to me, the big question mark is, does the movie thing have staying power? Because they're just showing this Darren Aronofsky movie all the time. It costs like 150 bucks to go see it. And, and maybe it does because it has established itself as a tourist destination. You have all these people coming into Vegas all the time. I think it's less than that. I think it was like 80 to see it. It depends on the day, maybe. Well, I went. I thought the U2 show was unbelievable. You're going to go when you're in Vegas and uh, you will give us your report. But I would buy stock in Sphere right now. You heard it here first. <laughs> all right. Uh, on that front, let's go to the deal of the year. What would you say the deal of the year is? I had two leading candidates for this, but I'll go with the bigger of the two, which is the fact that the owners of CAA were able to sell a majority stake in that agency at a valuation of about $7 billion at what has been a really down market for deals in the middle of a Hollywood strike. Like, I don't know, that's pulling a a, a rabbit out of the hat to me. Yeah, I I agree. That's a pretty big deal. Now, keep in mind, this is not, they did not sell the agency. They sold the TPG, the private equity firms interest in the agency in a deal that valued CAA at $7 billion. Yes, there's a new controlling shareholder. Yes, Francois-Henri Pinot. TPG owned CAA and TPG sold it. And the CAA guys still have a piece. Yes. Question, obviously, as to how they are sharing that windfall with their employees, but that's another matter. I think that's a huge win. Uh, I think Brian Lord, the CEO of CAA, is a candidate for who won the year, pulling off this deal. So I I will agree with you. The other deal I had was in the agency world as well, uh, adjacent at least, and it's Endeavor buying WWE at a $21 billion valuation for this combined entity that it has UFC and WWE. And there's a lot going on with Endeavor. They're going to go private probably next year because the market has not been valuing them as they believe they should be valued. But this one deal, I think, is a huge win for Endeavor. WWE is one of the premier quasi-sports organizations, and those do not grow on trees. So I think this is going to be a deal that pays for itself pretty soon. Interesting that you're saying huge win for Endeavor. I thought you were going to go huge win for WWE to get that sale. Oh, but, what, but, they, but they were multiple suitors for them. Still not the easiest deal deal market, and and the, the the market for sports media has been a little bit weak. Which is my my other candidate, which is on a much smaller scale, was the the women's soccer league, which got a really big media deal at a time when sports is moving in the other direction. Yeah, that's a big win. I don't know the, on the WWE thing. I I think that it's a good deal for both sides. Everyone criticized Ari Emanuel at Endeavor when they bought the UFC that paid for itself very soon. You know, the, they, these guys know from the television deals what the value and what the, the upside is for these leagues. And I think it, it's, it makes sense to have them under the roof of their negotiators. It, it, it's, at least it did with UFC. So I think WWE uh, will, will ultimately long-term be a good, this will be a good home. And they had to do something. Vince McMahon, I mean, they need to have a post-Vince McMahon strategy. Let's go from deal of the year to the sneaky bomb, or if you want a bad deal of the year, but let's go to the sneaky bombs. And I'll start with this one. I'm picking Expendables 4, which is a movie that happened and was released in late summer. Uh, It was during the strike. There was no promotion. 
This movie, according to multiple reports, cost $100 million. Stallone, Jason Statham, a bunch of others. Megan Fox is in this movie. Grossed $51 million worldwide, and that includes $20 million from China. Only $16 million domestic. The last one did $215 million worldwide. So it grossed a quarter of the previous installment, and that's not great for Expendables 4. I'm not going to lie. I forgot that this movie existed. Yeah, everyone forgot it happened. But I also have not seen any of the Expendables movies. So I'm, I, I, that makes sense. The first one's fun. But yeah, my runner-up was maybe, I mean, we haven't seen the full numbers, but Ferrari is not looking good this weekend. Cost $100 million, And the Christmas Day and Day After numbers were very bad. This is a little, maybe a little unfair, but my my answer for this will be just sort of the, the Apple movies of the fall. <laughs> um, Killers of the Flower Moon and Napoleon. The, the challenge with this, if you judge them based on traditional movie metrics, they are both total disasters and prove why traditional studios will not pay to, to make m- movies like this from Martin Scorsese and Ridley Scott because they are very expensive and not commercial enough to justify it. They're also both incredibly long. The caveat to this is Apple's obviously funding them for somewhat different reasons. They're trying to lift the streaming service. We'll see if that works. But judged based, purely based on the box office, total misfires, and, and staying in the streaming category, my runner-up would probably be Zack Snyder's Rebel Moon Part 1, which I admittedly thought was going to be a big hit over Christmas, and the preliminary numbers are not good, and there's a second movie coming out in three months, and Netflix probably wishes that they were doing a lot better. And the reviews were bad. I mean, it's like, Zack Snyder managed to make his worst movie for Netflix. Shocker. All right, so I want to go back to the Apple thing, because... The interesting thing about this is that the studios, the traditional studios are making money on Apple. They're taking a distribution fee to release these movies in theaters. Paramount on Killers of the Flower Moon, Sony on Napoleon, uh, Universal has Argyle coming out in winter. So the studios are making money on this. It's Apple that is just taking a bath on these. And you mentioned that Killers of the Flower Moon was to prop up the streaming service, but Killers of the Flower Moon is not on Apple TV right now over the holidays during a very potentially lucrative time. It's on premium video on demand where Apple presumably is putting it there to make some of its money back. So if Apple is trying to make back some of its money in this particular window, then maybe the Apple TV Plus is not the priority. Like, why are they doing that? Why are they not putting this movie directly onto Apple TV Plus to try to juice subscribers during this lucrative holiday period? Got to make some extra money. <laughs> or because they, they want to get... Everybody, or, the whole or, narrative around Apple is that we don't care about money. It's all about no, that's building up the they service. They care about money. They but hate you know the what reputation I mean. that they're the biggest spender. They're not in Hollywood to make money. Yet, here they are holding their movie back from the streaming service for money. Or for another reason that they'll tell us at some point. I mean, it's going to go presumably onto Apple TV Plus in January, February, right around the time that the Oscar nominations come out. So maybe they're trying to do Yeah, they're trying to maximize for when it gets the most nominations because critics are convinced that it's the best movie of the year uh, for reasons that confuse me. But I don't know. I just feel like the holiday season would have been the perfect time to jump to drop this. But they got to make some cash back. All right, let's move on to the Larry David Spite Store of the Year. This is the person who was pissed off at their former employer 
and went out on their own. You have the obvious one, and I don't want to step on it. So I'm going to take the other obvious one, which is David Nevins, the former head of Showtime, who sort of got pushed out of Paramount Global, had 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 a big job. His job shrank. He was upset about it. He tried to get a bigger job and then got pushed out instead uh, after kind of fighting a little bit with CEO Bob Backish. And then as he finds out that they're going to shut down, essentially shut down Showtime, he gets a bunch of money to try and go and buy it from his old company. And yeah, they that's say, a good one. thank you, thank you, but no thank you. Yeah, they should have sold it to him. $3 billion. Uh, what, what are they doing with Showtime now? They're basically combining it with Paramount Plus and killing it off. So they should have taken that deal. My Spice Store of the Year is the obvious one, the Disney guys. Ike Perlmutter teaming up with Nelson Peltz, the activist investor, to take on his nemesis, Bob Iger. He even recruited Jay Rasulo, who's the former CFO, uh, got pushed out of Disney and is now teaming with these guys. I mean, this is like the pathetic uh, story of the year, these guys trying to enact change at Disney when Iger is basically doing all the things that they think he should be doing. And it basically reads like a spite store. These guys are just pissed off and they have nothing better to do. It's a great one. I, I can't wait for all of the behind-the-scenes Disney drama. <laughs> all right. The final category for today is the Gretchen Mall Hollywood Has Decided I'm a Star Award. This is someone who is getting all the roles, appearing in all the movies, but maybe isn't quite a lure yet for audiences. You get to go first. I really struggled with this one. I just came up with like a bunch of generic white guys who get these big roles. <laughs> well, like, I have a generic like, white guy too. I have Jacob Elordi, who's, I know he's Craig's guy, but he, he still has not opened a movie. Priscilla did 20 million domestic. And that was a Sofia Coppola, you know, Elvis movie that probably benefited from having him in it, but we don't know. Saltburn, which is the polarizing Emerald Fennel movie, had Elordi in it, did 11 million domestic, didn't do great. It's already on Prime Video. He's got a couple indies lined up and more euphoria. Yeah, those are both awards movies trying to establish his credentials as a serious actor. And he is not the star or the name of either of those movies. That's true. But but that's why I'm baffled that he is considered like this bright, shining star in the next generation of Hollywood. The guy hasn't opened a movie. He hasn't even really tried. Yeah. Well, he's built. I mean, say what you know. want about Chalamet. Chalamet's a star. Yeah, exactly. He swung for it with Wonka and it worked. But you can only do the indie thing to establish your credibility for so long. If you want to be a star, I'm saying if you want yeah. to actually be a lure and someone who can greenlight a movie, you need to open a movie. And Jacob Elordi has not. None of these guys has, really. I've got my eye on Twisters next year because I was going to, I'm <laughs> thinking about Glenn Powell. Now, he was in Top Gun, but it's that movie's success has nothing to do with Glenn Powell. Right. His rom-com with Sidney Sweeney, which, by the way, I did see in theaters because I'm a lunatic, is bombing. And if Twisters, which he's one of the stars of next summer, doesn't work, I'm putting him on this Gretchen Mole for the year. He's going to get work forever, and he's not a, actually a star. Yeah. He's Kinda in a like, Richard Linklater movie, too. Like He'll have more, more chances. But uh, I agree. He has not proven himself at all. And I think we're seeing the limitations of Sidney Sweeney and Glenn Powell with this rom-com that was promoted endlessly. And it's just not theatrical. Can I give one in the, in the stand-up space? Oh, Craig, please. I think Matt Reif is a great <laughs> <laughs> Netflix giving this guy a special because he got famous on TikTok for six months and nobody liked the special. 
we're finding out that Matt Rife might actually just be a guy who's only good at like making fun of dudes' wives and crowd work. Wait, but you're forgetting a key fact here, Craig. He is very pretty. Is he? Th- that's his whole thing, right? He's like the hot comic. I don't know. He, he looks like 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 a Barbie doll to me. He, I, I know he kind of looks like a woman, but <laughs> but he but that is his thing on TikTok. Is he like does shirtless stand up sets and flexes and the whole thing? I just think in five years, I'm not I'm not sure where Matt Rife is going to be. Perhaps hmm. on OnlyFans. Maybe. Yeah. All right. That's a good one. On that note, that sour note. Thank you, Craig. We're going to adjourn. Uh, we're going to Lucas and I are going to hit the bar, try to creep on some movie stars here at the Beverly Hills Hotel. We will be back tomorrow with part two of the townies.